Turn with me in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you, you can take the blue one out of the rack in front of you and turn to page 325. You will be immensely helped to follow along as I read today's story, today's passage uh, in just a minute. And I would encourage you to go ahead and keep the Bible open in your lap as I preach, because my objective, as faulty as I may be in the effort, is not simply to preach, but to preach the Word. Preaching, by definition, is the proclamation of a message. So every man this morning who's getting up into a pulpit to preach is either proclaiming the words of men or the Word of God. And it's my job not to get up here and tell you what Chad thinks, but to tell you what God thinks. To proclaim to you a message that I have simply received and it's my job to pass along to you and to say, this is what the king says. Believe it and let us live it together. On a second account, it would behoove you to keep your Bible open in your lap today because today's story is very weird. <laughs> and there are some details that you're going to say, huh? And I just want you to know that they're there, and I'm not making them up. And we're going to wrestle with them together. It includes sister wives, a concubine, and a trophy wife, which sounds more like a TV show you'd find on TLC than something that belongs in the scriptures. So for no other reason than the fact that you want to see a very odd and twisted story this morning, leave your Bible open in your lap because this is things are going to get weird. All right. And yet, amazingly, this is the beauty of our God and his might and power, that he can work and draw a straight line with crooked sticks like the ones we're going to read about this morning. And so let's stand together as we receive the perfect word of God. Second Samuel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chileah of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maaka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? And Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, and to his friends, and, you have, not and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. 
God, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face until you first bring Michal, David's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with twenty men of David, when Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This morning, verse 1 is meant to set the tone for the way that we read the whole rest of the chapter. Verse 1 is the summary statement of which everything else that follows is going to explicate and explain for us. Verse 1 reads, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. So whatever takes place throughout the rest of this chapter is meant to be seen through this lens. This is an explanation of how David is growing stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul is growing weaker and weaker, and it begs the question, what is strength? What does strength look like? On the surface level, as we're reading through this passage, you might say that this whole chapter is about strong men and their women. Strong men and their women. But is that the way that God sees what's going on here? What is strength in God's eyes? Is what we see on the surface and what really the world around us would affirm is what it looks like to be strong, to be a man in charge. Is this what it means to be strong in the eyes of God? This morning's narrative encourages us to ask three sort of successive unfolding questions, and they all have to deal with what is strength. Number one, what is a strong kingdom? 
what is a strong kingdom? What does it look like for a kingdom to grow strong? Secondly, what is a strong man? And then thirdly, what is a strong king? And as we ask these questions, I think we'll be a little bit surprised at the answers we glean from God's word. So verse 1, as I said, tells us that David grew stronger and stronger. And then immediately in verses 2 through 5, we're confronted with what is supposed to be clear evidence to that fact. Verse 2. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, his second Chaliev of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, the third, Absalom, the son of Maaka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithream of Egla, David's wife. These were born to David at Hebron. The question we're asking is, what is a strong kingdom? And according to verse 2, a strong kingdom is filled with sons. That's the proof that David is growing stronger, that sons were born to David at Hebron. A strong kingdom is filled with sons because sons are heirs to the throne. Kingdoms don't have elections. Kingdoms have sons. And that's how you build a strong kingdom. You have a strong lineage. You build a dynasty of son Passing down to son, father to son, a kingdom is inherited, and a strong kingdom has many heirs. This reminds us of a truth that we really see from cover to cover throughout the entirety of Scripture, and it's this. The kingdom of God is a place that unequivocally, without exception or reservation, celebrates the birth of every child. Every child is a blessing from God, regardless of what circumstances in which it was conceived, regardless of whatever circumstances it is being born into. That child is a blessing. Regardless of what deficiencies that child may have at birth, regardless of what sins that child certainly is going on to commit in his or her life, that child in the kingdom of God is considered a blessing. As Christians, it's so important for us to be able to separate pregnancy and childbearing from sexual sin. Because if we don't, we might believe that there are some cases where a child is not a blessing, and in fact, it'd be better for us to end the life of that child. If that child was conceived in rape, for instance, if that child was conceived in polygamy, for instance, in today's passage. But the scriptures insist we have to be wiser than that. We can agree that rape in itself is evil and wrong and still celebrate the life of a child that may result from it. We can agree, as we're going to discuss in a moment, that polygamy is evil and wrong and still say the children born to David are a blessing to his kingdom. In caring for a pregnant mother who is not married, are we condoning fornication? In recognizing the value of David's sons, 
to his kingdom and celebrating them, are we also forced to celebrate polygamy? No. We have to be able to be wise Christians and separate these things from one another. We can do both. We can condemn sin and still celebrate God's good blessings. And that's what we have to do this morning in today's passage because it's really messy. We have to be able to sort through these complex realities in David's kingdom. What makes a strong kingdom? A strong kingdom is filled with sons, which to David's mind must necessarily mean something else. David thinks in order to have a strong kingdom filled with sons, it must also be a kingdom that is filled with wives. We're going to bump into this issue throughout the book, and this is the first sign that this problem is not going to go away in David's kingdom. John Gill puts it bluntly, polygamy or plurality of wives, which David gave into, is no favorable part of his character. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's a part of his character that is only going to be developed as the story continues. The author of 1 and 2 Samuel specifically highlights David's polygamy here, and I'll show you how. Look back at chapter 2. Verse 2 of chapter 2. This is just one chapter before. It reads, So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. So he is going to Hebron. And how many wives does he arrive with? Two. Fast forward seven and a half years. Chapter 3. Verses 2 through 5. The narrator conveniently counts the wives out for us by the children that are born by these women. We read first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. These were born to David in Hebron. He is still in Hebron. Seven and a half years have passed. And now how many wives does David have? Six. You can do the math. In seven and a half years, David has added four wives to his harem. And you might be thinking, well, God clearly thinks this is a good thing. It's saying David is getting stronger and stronger, and here he is. He's having more children by more and more wives, marrying more and more women. This must mean God thinks this is a good thing. And I might be tempted to think the exact same thing, Except that God, in his wisdom and his foreknowledge, forewarned and forbid this very practice 400 years before. When Moses was giving his last sermon to the people of Israel before he passed away, we've already heard it this morning, chapter 17, verse 17, he says, he picks out kings and he says, you can have kings, but you better watch out because kings better not do this. He shall not acquire many wives for himself. He shall not, lest his heart turn away. So God's law specifically targets polygamy and specifically calls out the king of Israel and says, you shall not do this. No way. So what we're going to see develop in 2 Samuel from chapter 3 and leading on is the reason why God said, don't do this. David is going to become a living parable, 
of why polygamy should never be found among the people of God. The very thing David thinks will strengthen his kingdom, adding more wives to his house, will prove to be the eventual destruction of his kingdom altogether. David's own son Solomon would take his father's example and logic to its natural conclusion. If the king can have more than one wife, why can't the king have 700 wives and 300 concubines? And he did. And what happened? Exactly what Moses said in the law would happen. His heart was turned away from the Lord. And the kingdom was split and the house fell. Many wives, the very thing that David thinks is a demonstration of his great strength and virility, actually serves to weaken his kingdom. Richard Phillips writes, Whereas marriage is designed to promote unity and harmony within the home, polygamy gives birth to a viperous den of intrigue and competition. We will see all of this on display in its ugliness in David's life as this book continues. No wife can ever be secure in her relationship when she is only one of many women to share her husband's bed. Throughout the Bible, from the time when Abraham took Sarah's maidservant Hagar into his embrace, polygamy has corrupted female society so that the household of a polygamist is certain to be one of internal strife and woe. So if multiple wives turns out to be disastrous for the house of David and to sow discord and disunity and destruction when we know David is the exemplar, the man after God's own heart. If polygamy can't work for him, we know it's not going to work for any of us. That is the point, brothers and sisters. Before we move on to our second question, question one, what is a strong kingdom brings us to an eyebrow-raising point, which is this. As frustrating as it has been for men down throughout history, you cannot build a strong kingdom filled with sons without a woman. You can't do it. It's biologically impossible for a king to build up a strong kingdom without a woman. Just ask Henry VIII. A king seeking to build a dynasty needs a son. And a king in need of a son needs a woman. Because contrary to whatever confusion this world may be spreading in the name of progress and equality, men cannot get pregnant. Women are the only ones privileged to bring life into this world. A king is absolutely impotent to build a kingdom on his own a king's kingdom will go to his grave with him if there's not a woman standing by his side. So it's a, it's a bizarre fact then this morning in a passage that describes the disparaging way that women were treated and traded in ancient Near Eastern culture, how they gathered them as sister wives, concubines, and trophy wives. And yet all of this seems to highlight, if we're willing to see it, how essential women are to kingdom building. There has never been and never will be a great, strong, mighty, enduring kingdom on this earth without women and, might we add, also without children. 
and the kingdom of heaven is no different. God created man and put him in a garden alone so that he could realize how empty his kingdom was without a woman. And God states the obvious. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And when Adam falls into sin and death begins to reign over this world, who must he direct all of his hopes on? The Bible tells us in Genesis 3, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. If there was hope for eternal life to re-enter this world, it was going to have to come to a woman. What an amazing truth. What is a strong kingdom? Paradoxically, it is one that is filled with what the world would consider weak. Women and children. Churches that hold women and children in high esteem reflect the value and the values of the kingdom of God. Which brings us to our second question as the story progresses, and it's this. We, we've thought about what is a strong kingdom, but what is a strong man? We begin to explore this question as another character moves onto the scene. We've met him already in verse 6. We read, while, this, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David... Another man has been hard at work. Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now, hopefully you remember Abner. He is the general of Saul's army. And after Saul passed away, Abner is the one who took Ishbosheth and put the crown on his head and put him on the throne. And he's the one who's been propping up the son of Saul this whole time in rebellion against King David's kingdom. How... Does Abner answer this question? He's trying to strengthen himself. So it might be interesting to ask this question, what is a strong man? How would Abner answer this question? Well, we get our answer in verse 6 or verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and, you've, you have, not, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba, and Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. It's interesting how David's concept of kingdom building and Abner's concept of kingdom building are so very similar. And things have not changed much today. If you look into the culture that we live in, the lifestyles of athletes, celebrities, corporate executives. We see this on college campuses. We acknowledge it in the prevalence of online pornography and in our entertainment. A man is proven strong by his conquest of women. Or so Abner thinks. And David, sadly, 
In David's case, a man is powerful and strong because he has many women. In Abner's case, he is powerful and strong because he has had many women. This is a power move on Abner's part. To, to go into the king's concubine is, is the, essentially the same as, as a lion when he comes into a pride and he kills off the other male lions and then spreads his own seed throughout the pride. That's what's going on here. He is making a power move. Is this what a strong man looks like? Many in the world would say so. A man who follows his desires, a man who takes any woman he wants. What's interesting here is how Abner seeks to downplay what he has done. He says, here I am, Ishbosheth. I'm the one who has made you king. I'm the one who has rebelled against David, in fact, has rebelled against the very promise and word of God to keep you on this throne. I'm remaining loyal to you, and you want to argue with me about some minor matter concerning a woman? But here's the funny thing. Abner is trying to downplay this matter and trying to make it sound like not a big deal. But this matter, this tiny matter concerning a woman he won't even name, for some reason, for Abner, becomes the last straw. This thing that he says is not that significant. Now he says, this is the tipping point for me. I'm going to give the kingdom to David. Am I a dog's head? Does that sound like someone who doesn't really care about this matter or someone who is deeply insulted concerning this matter. And to prove how not a big deal it is to me, I'm going to deliver your whole kingdom into David's hand. Okay. Methinks he doth protest too much. <laughs> Johannes uh, Bugenhager wonders, moreover, why would Abner, who if allowed, would have perpetually served the king against David, change his mind at this moment unless the king were getting in the way of his desires. Ah, yes, this is a very big matter to him. The king is getting in the way of the strong man's desires. How mighty and strong Abner is. A man who is willing to move kingdoms for some nameless woman. This woman, whom Abner will not even name, whom he insists means nothing to him, actually does mean quite a lot. She's the catalyst. She's the turning point. She is the fulcrum upon which the weight of power shifts. A fault concerning a woman, as Abner puts it, is what brings the end of Ishbosheth's reign and of Abner's life altogether. So this is what Abner believes a strong man is. He takes over the pride by exercising his conquest over the king's harem. But here in the testimony of God, actually, in fact, in Abner's own words, we find the true definition of a strong man. A strong man is a man who follows and trusts in and depends and submits to God's word. Abner says, look how strong I am. I'm holding up this whole kingdom in contradistinction to God's promise and God's word. Look how mighty and powerful I am. 
God promised David would be king. I'm propping you up here contrary to God's word. Can't you see how strong I am? In a moment, do you not realize how I could give the kingdom to David? Really? Because, Abner, it seems to me the only thing that you're able to bring about is your own downfall and downfall of your friends. Because a man who walks contrary to God's word is not strong at all. A strong man not only knows the word of God, Abner knew God's word. He quotes it word for word. This is what God promised about David. No, a strong man knows God's word and then does it. And not merely when it's politically convenient. Not when it suits his own desires. All of a sudden, the tides have turned and Abner realizes, you know what? It might serve my desires better if I were to join up and take league with David now. David's not going to keep me from what I want. Men, here is where this all begins. Do you want to be a strong man? Strength begins in bowing the knee and submitting to the rightful king. Not because it's expedient, not because it gets you ahead in work or with some girl you're trying to date or because it's politically, uh, it's, it's good for you politically and it gets you ahead in the game. No. You submit to Jesus. You bend the knee. All of your pride and arrogance and all of the conquest that you're seeking, you lay aside and instead you become a servant of the rightful king. You find strength, not in acting against his word, but in doing it. In doing what King Jesus commands. What is a strong man? A strong man follows God's word. Now our worlds collide as David and Abner march onto the stage together and introduce us to our third and final question. What is a strong king? What is is a strong king. So Abner, he makes his way into David's territory. He comes to Hebron and he says, hey, let's make a deal. Let's cut a covenant, all right? Let's make a peace treaty. You know I've got a lot of sway in this other kingdom. We both want this to come to an end. You let me into your kingdom and I'll bring everybody else with me. And David says, that's fine. I just have one term. You need to bring my wife back first. If you don't remember the story, or if you weren't here during our time in 1 Samuel, I'll give you a little backstory on what happened here, okay? So David's first marriage was actually to a woman who deeply loved him, Saul's own daughter, Michal. And the way that David won her, Saul actually was trying to get the Philistines to kill David. He said, you know what, I'll give you my daughter. I just need you to get me 100 Philistine foreskins as her bride price. Disgusting. David gets 200 of them, shows up on the door. All right, I'm ready. And Saul can't believe it. He has to give his own daughter to his rival. What happens is Saul then comes a couple of months later trying to bang down David's door to kill him. And what McCall does is she puts a little dummy of David in his bed, helps him jump out the back window, and fools Saul's, aunt, Saul's soldiers while David is hightailing it out of the kingdom. So what Saul does to spite David, his rival, and to spite his own daughter for betraying her father and helping his rival escape, he takes McCall, who is legally married to David, and he gives her to another man. 
So, do you want to see a strong king in action? We have it here in verse 14. Look at the power move that David pulls in verse 14. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me, my, give me my wife Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. What is a strong king? A strong king is a king who can ransom his bride with just the word of his mouth. A strong king is one who can use his power to ransom his bride without even having to lift a sword. This act, which David does for his first wife, McCall, is a prophetic act in what he will one day do for God's people and all of their in, against their enemies. As Abner confers with the elders of Israel, he reminds us of the promise of the Lord in verse 18. Look at it with me. Now then, bring it about, he's speaking to the elders. For the Lord has promised to David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all of their enemies. So this is what David is one day going to do for all the people. He's going to get them out of the grip, out of the snatches of the Philistines and all of their enemies and draw them back into a relationship with the Lord. King David, think about this, commands his rival king, Ishbosheth and says, literally, send your sister back to me. Ishbosheth doesn't fight it. He doesn't say anything. He goes, takes McCall, and sends her back. There is no more humiliating act David could have forced his rival king to perform than to send his own sister back to her rightful husband. And as Paltiel is there and he's weeping and he's falling and he's begging and pleading for her not to be taken back, it reminds us of what Samuel said was going to happen to the house of Saul when he disobeyed the Lord. Do you remember that scene? Saul falls down and he's weeping and pleading and he grabs onto Samuel's robe and he tears it. Samuel turns to him and says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Just because a man runs off with a woman does not make her his rightful wife. Paul Tiel had the immorality to marry a woman who was already married to another man and who had been stolen from that man. Just because Ishbosheth ran off with the people of Israel and betrothed them to himself and had a coronation ceremony doesn't make that kingdom his. What is happening here is a prophetic act, first, about what David is about to do, and secondly, and finally, about what Jesus Christ one day would do for us. Because he is our strong king. Brothers and sisters, we are like McCall. Yes, Satan has tried to hold us captive. He has insisted, no, you belong to my kingdom. 
He's tried to marry us off to other loves and other idols and other passions and pleasures and sins. But when our king comes and he summons us, there is nothing, not a word, not a deed that the powers of darkness can prevent us from crossing lines from one kingdom into the next. I wonder whether you hear his call today. Your king has not forgotten you. Wherever you may be enslaved, whatever sin, whatever idol you may be chained to this morning. Whatever sin holds you captive, he bids you, come, return. He says, I have paid the price for you. Not a hundred Philistine foreskins. My own body has been pierced through and torn so that I can have you as my own. My blood has been shed and the price has been paid. You belong to me. Will you come? Do you hear the summons of your bridegroom? Will you admit the truth with his very blood? He has purchased me. He owns my life. I belong to him. If this is true, you need to join the kingdom of God. You need to be baptized. You need to demonstrate the truth that a transfer has happened. It is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. And if you have been baptized, you need to join the people of God. You need to covenant yourself in membership to the church of God. People of God, we are a bride. We shall be a bride. We can either remain in an illicit, illegitimate, common law marriage with this world and remain in the kingdom of darkness, or we can trust that Jesus, our Savior and Lord, has paid with his own body and blood and is now enacting a decree from before the foundation of the world that we belong to him, that he has paid for us, and he will have us in his kingdom. There is nothing that can prevent you from being his. Brothers and sisters, as we survey this passage and we continue in this narrative for weeks to come, there's nothing I wish I could say more than that David is the ideal, strong, and perfect king. But he's not. He's not. But that is a good desire. David is going to fall woefully short, but the good news is, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ, the son of David, is the ideal, perfect, and strong king. Brothers and sisters, we wish that as the story continued, Israel would prove to be the perfect and strong kingdom and that it would never fall but bad news. It will. The good news, though, of the gospel is that the kingdom of heaven over which the son of David sits on his eternal throne is and will forever be full of righteousness, justice, and glory now and forevermore. King Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, the strong man, the strong king shall reign over his strong kingdom, not just from Dan to Beersheba, but the kingdom of the entire world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that by the word of your power, you can call us forth. That you can simply say the word, mine, and we are yours. 
I pray, Lord, that if there's any here, a child, man or woman, who has not responded to your call, Lord, I pray that you would put your spirit in their heart, that you would claim them as your own, and draw them into your kingdom. We pray this all trusting in your name, Jesus. Amen.